You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign, so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray together. O Spirit of God, you are the one who has written this book and this word. You are the author of Scripture, and you dwell within us, your people. We pray that you would give us insight and clarity into these things and help us to think properly about truth, help us to rightly divide your word, that we might um, be, present ourselves as workmen that need not be ashamed. Help us also to think clearly so that we might give right application to your word and to these truths. May you be glorified to do this. O Spirit of God, be our teacher, and may your word be our guide, and may we submit our hearts and our minds to it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. There is within each and every one of us a propensity to think far more highly of ourselves than we ought. Everybody agree with that? I think so. You certainly would agree with the statement that there is a propensity within the person sitting to your right or to your left to think far more highly of themselves than they ought. Maybe you're not quite sure that you think more highly of yourself than you ought. I find within myself these um, indications of my own pride and self-righteousness each and every day. I think it is expressed, that pride and that self-righteousness is expressed when we say to ourselves, In the same situation, under the same circumstances, I would never have responded like that. Instead, I would have done X. That is sin, and that is the sin of pride and self-righteousness. It is thinking that I would have been righter or more right in that situation than that person was. Given the same circumstances, given the same choices and opportunities, I would have responded differently. That's saying I am more right and more righteous, and more wise, and more discerning than that person was. And that is pride. That is self-righteousness. You watch for it, and you will find it in yourself each and every day. I see it in myself each and every day. I wouldn't have pulled out in front of me like that. Given the same circumstances and the same opportunity to make the same choice, I would have responded differently. I would never do something in traffic to some other person like what they just did to me. Or I would never think that. Or I would never do that. I would never sin in that way. I would have never responded like that. I would have behaved differently. That's sin and self-righteousness. I see it in myself more and more every day, and I'm growing 
to hate it in myself more and more every day because I realize it is a higher view of myself than I ought to have. And really what it does is it presumes that in my heart there is something better in me than is present in that other person. It fails to recognize that apart from the grace of God, I would respond exactly the same way that that person responds. We look at John chapter 6 and we say of the crowd in John chapter 6, how could they be so benighted? How could they be so darkened in their understanding? How could they be so lost in the clutches of unbelief as to see the light of Christ's presence in front of them, to watch the glory of His miracles that He has done, the healings, the feeding of the 5,000, to hear His teaching and yet not believe? In that same situation... I would have believed. Right? That's really what is behind the, that's what, that's the assumption behind the question, behind the statement. In the same circumstances, given the same light, if I were to see Jesus and see His miracles, I would have responded differently. That's pride and that's unbelief, and it fails to recognize that apart from the grace of God, I would do exactly what those people did. I would respond with the same unbelief, because my heart, apart from the grace of God, is exactly like their heart, locked in darkness, held fast in unbelief, unable to free itself apart from the grace of God. Well, we see unbelief in all of its ugliness expressed in John chapter 6 in this crowd. And I begin with this simply because I want to warn us all against the what is going to be the propensity for us to do, and that is to look at the response of the crowd in John 6 and say, I would never have done that. Guard against that. Because you would have done that. Have you ever looked at Adam and said, how could he have sinned? I would never have sinned like Adam. It's not just for God to impute to me the guilt of Adam. I would never have sinned like that. Really? You know what's true? Every person in this room would have sinned just like Adam if given the opportunity in the same set of circumstances. That is why it is just for God to make Adam our federal head. Because we would have done exactly what Adam did, apart from the grace of God. Apart from the grace of God. I look back at the days that I spent before I was a believer, before God regenerated me and changed my heart and caused me to be born again. I look at my heart back then and I say to myself, how how could I possibly be so unbelieving? How could I possibly have been so blasphemous to respond to God's goodness and the majesty and creation and not see Him in the light of everything around me and not to hear His voice in Scripture? How could I have been so deaf, so blind, so wicked, so sinful, so cruel as I was? Well, it's because my heart is locked in unbelief. Was, unbe- was locked in unbelief, I should say. It isn't now. It's been freed by Christ. My heart was locked in unbelief, just like the crowd in John chapter 6. So this is the bread of life discourse that we are looking at. We're picking it up today in verse 28. We saw last week how the crowd got from the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee to the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. We saw how it is that the crowd asked Jesus, how did you get here or when did you get here? Really, it's a question also of how did you get here? And Jesus didn't answer any of those questions, didn't tell them about the miracle. Instead, he confronts them with their improper motive for seeking Him. You seek Me not because you saw the signs and you understand the significance of the signs. It's not that the signs pointed in your mind to who I am and you have sought Me because of who I am. Instead, you seek Me because you want another free meal. They came to Jesus not because their hearts were filled with wonder, love, and praise for Him, but because their bellies had been filled with bread by Him. And what they want is another meal. They don't want to worship. They're not interested in obedience. They're not interested in heart teaching. What they want is another free meal. And so they come and they're seeking Him but not for the right reasons. And Jesus confronts them with that. 
And all the way through the passage, the analogy that Jesus is using is that of, of bread. And it is the bread of life. You see him make the statement in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Because up to that point, they hadn't got it. They thought, like the woman at the well when Jesus was talking about water, they thought that all the way through this so far, he has been talking, when he talks about bread and the bread of God and the bread from heaven, they think he's describing a physical bread, some sort of a manna type bread. And so they're confused all the way up until verse 35 where Jesus says, I am the bread. What I'm speaking of is not something else to be given to you. It is myself. And so knowing their hunger, knowing that they were seeking Him because they were hungry, knowing that they wanted physical bread, Jesus seized on the idea of bread and uses it as a teaching tool to describe Himself and the salvation that He offers. And that's how we get the bread of life discourse. Unlike the discourse in chapter 5, this discourse is punctuated by responses from the crowd, questions from the crowd, and interaction with the crowd. John 5, the Divine Son discourse, is one long discourse without any recorded interaction from the Pharisees and the Jews who heard him. But in John chapter 6, there is a back and forth between the crowd and Jesus. And the reason for that is so that you and I can see the heart condition of this crowd and the type of light that they rejected and how they remained locked in their unbelief. So Jesus has confronted them with their uh, sin, their false motive for seeking him. And now we pick it up in verse 28. This is the response of the crowd. Jesus said in verse 27, skip up to verse 27 because this is important, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? What is behind, what is the assumption behind their question, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? In their mind, and the assumption behind that, is that in order to gain eternal life, they must do something to make themselves acceptable to God. Now, it, it might be somewhat understandable in light of Jesus' statement in verse 27 that they might think that he's talking about a salvation by works. Look what he says in verse 27. Do not work for the food which perishes, but, and the implication is, work for the food which endures for eternal life. You're striving after and you're working for the wrong thing. You're seeking me, you follow me around, you got food for your bellies, earlier in the chapter, the feeding of the 5,000, and now you're seeking me, coming across the lake, seeking me again for more food. You're striving, you're working, you're pursuing me for food which perishes. Don't work, don't pursue me for the food which perishes, but instead for the food which endures to eternal life. So then they want to know, well, what work are you talking about? We're willing to work for our salvation if you will tell us what it is that we must do to be saved. Now, this is the mindset not only of the Jews of Jesus' day, it's also the mindset of every lost, unregenerate individual who thinks that they can gain God's favor by working for their salvation and gaining eternal life by what they can do to merit it. So the mindset of the Jews in Jesus' day was that we can do works, that is, things which accumulate merit, and if we accumulate enough merit, we can be seen as righteous in God's sight. That was the mindset of a Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Apostle Paul. He talks about it in Philippians 3. I was born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. When it came to the law, I was righteous and blameless and all this. All these things were works of righteousness, merits, which he thought he had accumulated up and built up, which God would look at and, they, and God would be pleased with that. That was the mindset of the Jews. Give us a list of righteous deeds, law works that we can do. And by doing these works, these works, works of God it's called. That's not works that God does, but works with which God is pleased works that God can approve of, favorable works to God, 
By doing all of that, we can heap up righteousness. And Paul says in Philippians 3, I had heaped up plenty of human righteousness. But it was all dumb. It was all useless. Because seen in light of the righteousness of Christ, all of my merits of law righteousness is nothing before God. So the mindset of the Jew was, what must I do? There's something I must do to inherit eternal life. You remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 16? Good teacher, what must I do to gain eternal life? The lawyer in Luke chapter 10, verse 25 said to Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's what the Jews want to know. Give me my thing that I have to do to gain life. And I will do that. That's exactly what the Jews here are requesting. What must we do to work the works of God? What, what work do you have in mind? Now it might be that Jesus' reference to bread or the food which endures to eternal life would spark in the mindset of the Jews the idea of the law. And here's why. The Jews in Jesus' day thought of the law or used bread, I should say, or food as a metaphor for the law. And statements in the Old Testament like man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, statements like that made the Jews think of the law in terms of of uh, bread or food. So to them, doing the law of God was like eating. Obeying the law of God was like food to them. And that's how they thought of it. That's the analogy that they would use. Now Jesus in verse 27 has said, do not work for the food that perishes, but work for that which endures to eternal life. And so they would say food, eternal life. Food is like the law in their mindset. And eternal life is heaven. So give us some law work that we might do to gain heaven. The Jews had completely missed the fact that Jesus has told them also in verse 27 that salvation was a gift. Look at the end of verse 27 again. You don't work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. It's a gift. They heard work. They heard law. They didn't hear give. So they're thinking in terms of, you've mentioned eternal life, you've mentioned works, you've mentioned working for something, so tell us, What single thing of the law can we do to merit God's favor? That's what they want to know. Give me the work. I'm bidding on eternal life and I want to know what thing can I do to seal the deal on my bid for eternal life, which will get me in. Now that is the mentality of everybody who works for their salvation. Every unbeliever who rejects the righteousness of Christ by faith must pursue instead their own righteousness through what they do. And unbelievers think that God will be pleased with them because they have kept the Ten Commandments to the best of their ability, because they have loved their neighbor and done good things, and they help the little old lady across the street, and they tithe, and they serve, and they do this good deed and that good deed, and they don't smoke, and they don't chew, and they don't drink too much. And so they do all of these things that they can somehow pile up and offer to God on Judgment Day, and they think that God can be bribed by their good works, to overlook all of their wicked deeds. As if God is a judge that can be bribed. That is the mentality of the unregenerate. That is the mentality of the sinner who rejects the righteousness of Christ by faith and instead says, I will please God with my own righteousness. I will acquire my own righteous deeds. And that's what the Jews were thinking. What must we do? What work must we do, which is the work of God, the work that God will be pleased with, which will gain us eternal life? Now that question, what must I do to be saved, it can also be a good question, can it? Remember in Acts chapter 2, Peter, after preaching on the day of Pentecost, he said to the crowd, you have crucified the Lord of glory, and God raised him up again. You're guilty of murdering God's Son, our Messiah, the Prince and Savior, 
And God raised him up again to eternal life and seated him at his right hand of God. And you are going to be judged because of what you have done. And what was the response of the crowd? They said, men and brethren, what must we do? Repent and be baptized, Peter said in second, or Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Do you remember in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail, and after the earthquake and the shackles fell off and the doors were wide open, what did the Philippian jailer say? What must I do to be saved? So the question can be used to express either the self-righteous, vainglorious, human pride-filled heart that insists on earning its own righteousness in the sight of God, or that question can be used to express the contrite, conscience-pricked sinner who sees the weight of their sin and desires to be free of their guilty conscience and their condemnation before God. The question can be used to express either one. In the case of the, the rich young ruler, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I'm prideful, I'm sinful, or sorry, I'm prideful and I'm righteous and I want eternal life. Tell me what I must do. In the case of the Philippian jailer, I'm righteous, I'm without righteousness, I am a sinner, tell me what I must do. The same question can be used to express two different kinds of hearts. Now I ask you this, how do you know if the question is expressing a pride-filled, vainglorious heart that insists on pleasing God through its own merit, or a conscious, pricked, humble, and contrite heart that's seeking alleviation from a condemned conscience. How do you know which that question is expressing? You can only know it by what the person does with the answer when it is given. When you give the answer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and they respond with repentance, faith, and belief, then they are the humble, contrite person seeking forgiveness. But if they respond by saying, mm, no, thanks, I don't want that. Instead, I want my own righteousness, then you know it's human pride. And you can tell what's in the heart of these people by how they respond to Jesus' answer. Let's look at Jesus' answer first. Verse 28, or sorry, verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Who's the one whom God has sent? It's the one standing before them speaking. You believe in me, Jesus is saying. He's pointing to himself. They want to know what must they do. You have to believe on me. That's the work of God. You want to know what the work of God is? The work of God is that you believe on the one whom God has sent. The one upon whom, verse 27, the Father God has set his seal. The one whom the Father has sent and validated through the miracles, the one whom you have seen perform the signs in front of you, you cast yourself on him. Now I want you to recognize how audacious that claim is. You recognize that? We read over that. We don't think anything of it. No prophet... No king, no lawgiver ever in the Old Testament ever spoke like this. You can read through all the Old Testament prophets and you'll never see a prophet say, if you want eternal life and forgiveness, you must believe on me. No prophet ever said that. That's proof that the person saying this is more than a mere man, more than a mere prophet, more than a mere king. Only God in human flesh could say that. Only God in human flesh could say, if you want eternal life, you have to come to me and rely upon me and trust me. Believe on me. Turn from your sin and turn to me and cast yourself entirely on me and you will have eternal life. That's what Jesus says. He points them to himself. No prophet would ever say that. But Jesus had no problem saying that because he was not a mere prophet. Instead, he was God in human flesh and he pointed people to himself. Now, there's something that's going to catch the eye of the observant reader in verse 29. Did you catch it? This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. Did you just hear Jesus call belief a work? Did you just hear Jesus call belief a work? This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. And we say, 
Wait a second. We affirm that salvation is not by works. It's by grace. Through faith, I am saved. Not of works. It's not of works. But if belief is the work of God, if it is a work, if belief is a work, and I am saved through my belief, then am I not saved through a work? Doesn't that make sense? Do you want to know what to work? You're supposed to work? Believe on Him whom the Father has sent. Well, if belief is a work and we're saved by belief, then can we not say that we are saved by works? Now, I hope for every person in here, there's something in you that says, hmm, I don't even like the sound of that coming from the pulpit. We do affirm that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith, and that, even the faith, is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of works, so that no man can boast. And Titus 3, verse 5, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly. We have been saved by that. We affirm that by the works of the law, no flesh will ever be declared righteous or justified in the sight of God. If righteousness could be attained through the law, then Christ died in vain. And the death of Christ was worth nothing, and it was unnecessary entirely if we could achieve our own righteousness. So we affirm with every fiber of our being, every atom of our substance, that salvation is not by works, it is by grace through faith. Romans chapter 4, verse 5, Paul says, To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. In other words, you have to stop working. And it's to the one who does not work but merely believes that God justifies us and declares us righteous. Romans chapter 11, verse 6, If it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You can't drop even a, a drop of works into an ocean of grace without destroying the grace. You can never say that salvation is in any way at any time of human merit or human doing. And the unrighteous person doesn't want to hear that. The unregenerate, unsaved individual does not want to get to heaven by somebody else's doing. He wants to get to heaven by his own doing. That's the offense of the cross. Did you actually have to tell somebody, you have to stop working and stop striving and stop trying to merit it and instead just believe on the one who has merited it on your behalf. Because you are so sinful and because God is so holy and heaven is so great, There's nothing you can possibly do to merit it. And no amount of human works could merit it. If you could live a thousand lifetimes, a thousand times over, you could never heap up enough human righteousness to even make up for one single sin. So eternal life is not by works. It is entirely and completely by grace. So what is Jesus talking about when he says in verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in whom him whom he has sent. I want you to notice, first of all, that Jesus changes the, their works, plural, into work, singular. In verse 28, they ask, what is the work that we might do that we might work the works of God? In other words, what they're thinking of is all of this group of things that we can do to heap up, add to our righteousness and our merit, so that God might look upon us and He would be pleased. And Jesus takes their idea of works, plural, changes it singular and said, this is the one work that you must do, you must believe. Now, in what sense and in what way is belief a work? Is your belief something that merits you the favor of God? Does God look at you and say, you have believed, therefore you have earned my favor? 
Because of your faith, I will show you my favor. Now think carefully for just a second. Your belief does nothing to gain you acceptance before God. And your faith does not merit the favor of God in any way. It is Christ who makes you acceptable to God. Faith is the means by which His work is credited to my account. And I cannot look to my faith as something which pleases God, and He will look upon me and see my faith, see my belief, see the decision that I have made, and say, ah, with that, I am well pleased. That's the idea behind viewing faith as a work. Faith is not something, and belief is not something that we do which merits God's favor. Belief and faith are the means by which God's favor is given to us, not because of what we have done, including our belief and our faith, but because of what Christ has done on behalf of those who believe. So faith is not a work. Belief is not a work. And so what is Jesus saying when he says, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent? Is belief a work? It is a work, if you want to call it that, only in this sense, that it is the natural response of the sinner to the message of the gospel when the Spirit of God is working in the heart of the sinner to draw him to Christ. Belief and faith is something that we do. Now, on the other side of that coin, I ask you this. Who believed for you in your salvation? Did you believe or did God do the work of belief for you? God didn't believe for you. You were the one who believed. You were the one who believed. You did do that. But, in the context of John 6, even that is a gift of God. That belief. That belief is not a human work that merits God's favor That belief is the result of the grace of God working in the heart of a sinner. Working the work of God and the work of God which is belief. If you want to work the work of God, believe. It's kind of an oxymoron that Jesus is using in this way. It is almost as if Jesus is saying, you want a work to do? Here it is. Stop doing. That's what you do. You stop doing. Belief is so opposite of works that it's an oxymoron to speak of the work of faith or the work of believing. Because believing is not a work. And so Jesus is saying, you want something to do, do this, stop doing. That's what you do, you stop doing and you believe instead. So it's an oxymoron to speak of the work of faith or the work of believing, because believing is not a work. It's actually stopping working. It's striving to stop working. Abandon your own self-righteousness. Abandon your own merit-seeking activities. Abandon trying to earn salvation and just simply rest and believe. Stop working. That's the work you need to do. You see the irony there? They wanted to work. Jesus says, work this. Stop working. And believe on the one whom the Father has sent. It's a stunning declaration. Now look at verse 30. Here's the response to this. Now, now I asked you a question earlier. Hold on. I asked you a question earlier. How can you tell if that question, what must I do to be saved, is the expression of a heart that is insistent on finding its own righteousness in the sight of God? Or how do I know if it is the expression of a heart that has been pierced by the, the knowledge of sin and the law and understands what, that it must seek something to remedy a guilty conscience and a guilt record before God? How do I know which heart that question expresses? And I said, it is by the, how the person responds to the answer. 
So they asked, what must we do to inherit eternal life? That's the essence of their question. What work must we work? Jesus says, you don't work, you believe. Now look at their response, verse 30. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Give us, Jesus, some sign, some some clue as to who you are and what you came to do. Now, is that not ironic? It most certainly is. Less than 24 hours earlier, they had seen him multiply bread and fish out of nothing. They saw that sign. They followed him because of the signs that they saw, chapter 6, verse 2, over to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and there they saw him healing their sick and working signs on their sick. They saw the manifestation of his messianic credentials, God validating him, and now he has just told them, you need to stop doing and simply entrust your eternity entirely to me, And they're saying to him, what do you do to show us that we ought to trust our eternity entirely to you? Show us some sign. Work some wonder. And we're not going to get to this this week, but next week. Verse 31 tells us why it is that they didn't think that the multiplying of the bread and fish the previous day was a sufficient enough sign. They wanted a Moses-type sign. You provided food for 20,000. Provide it for the whole nation. You did it one time. Do it many times. That's what they want. They want a sign. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, Verse 22, the Jews seek after a sign. Greeks want wisdom, Jews seek after a sign. There's no greater demonstration of that truth than the passage that is before us. You want to impress a Greek? You go out on the street and you wax eloquent with some worldly philosophical system. Some worldly man-made thinking. And the Greeks will, oh. Acts 17, they used to sit around and be engaged in nothing but saying and hearing something new. That's how the Greeks entertain themselves. What do the Jews want? You want to impress a Greek? You give them wisdom. You want to impress a Jew? What do you do? Perform a sign. Show us a trick. Show us why we should believe in you. This is the same thing that they said in Matthew 12, 38, when the Pharisees said, Teacher, we want a sign from you. And Jesus said, No sign is going to be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. In John chapter 2, remember after Jesus cleansed the temple? The Pharisees in the temple and the Jews in the temple said, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? They wanted a sign. Show us some miraculous demonstration. You say, do they have, is it short-term memory loss that they have? Or is it just that no sign is sufficient? It's the latter. No sign is sufficient. They had seen him multiply bread and fish. They had seen him heal the multitudes. Is that not sufficient to demonstrate his messianic credentials? It is. But what do they want beyond that? They want another sign, a bigger sign, a greater sign, a more showy sign, a more magnificent sign, maybe even just another sign. And this is what unbelieving men do. They say, if only we had proof, we would believe. Is that a true statement? Unbelief is never due to a lack of light. It is always due to a love for darkness. The reason for unbelief is not because men have not been given reason to believe. It is because they love darkness more than they love light. And those who remain in unbelief remain in unbelief not because they haven't seen enough signs, But they remain in unbelief because they love darkness more than they love light and they don't want to come to the light because their wicked deeds will be exposed. That causes one to cast aside their pride and to see what they are in the light of truth of God's word. Would these Jews have believed if he had performed a greater sign? If he had multiplied bread and fish, would they have believed again? Would they have suddenly believed? No, they would not have believed. They say, how could they be so benighted, so darkened, so wicked, so sinful? so blind to the truth that they would actually want another sign. 
He had done this less than 24 hours earlier, and now it's as if they have forgotten everything that they saw the previous day, and they want another sign. There's nothing new here. Remember the children of Israel? It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Remember the children of Israel coming out of Egypt? Moses worked the miracle of the ten plagues and delivered the whole nation and brought them out to the edge of the Red Sea. And Pharaoh's army is in hot pursuit. They have seen the ten signs. They demonstrated that. And then what did they do? Facing the Red Sea on one side and Pharaoh's army behind them, what do they say? They say, oh, wait till you see what God's going to do to deliver us now. We can't wait to see what he's going to do. No, they didn't say that at all. They said, it's because there's not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out here in the desert to have the Egyptians slaughter us out here in no man's land? Is that why you brought us out here? And Moses said, stand still and see the salvation of God. And God parted the rivers and they walked through on dry land and they're all praising God. And the very next thing, Exodus chapter 16, what happens? They're grumbling because of the water. We want water. There's no water out here. We want fresh, clean water. Grumble, grumble, grumble. As if they had forgot the ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and all of that that just happened prior to that. So God brings them water out of a rock, miraculously. And then what happens? We don't have anything to eat. We want food. Oh, if we only had the leeks and the onions and the melons that were back in Egypt. Is it because you brought us out here in the desert because there's not enough graves in Egypt to kill us out here by starvation? We're all going to starve in the desert. So God sends them manna from heaven. And then what happens? They grumble about the manna. Manna? Seriously, just manna? Can't God provide something else? We want watermelon. We want the days back in Egypt. It was better to be a slave and eat watermelon than it is to be free out here in the desert and eat nothing but manna. And they grumble about that. So God brings them quail. And then what happens after they bring them quail? They complain about more water. And God supplies more water for them. Another, out of a rock. Did they learn their lesson? No, no. Enter into the promised land. And they send in spies to spot the promised land. Then what happens? The spies come back and say, we can't do this. We'll never be able to do this. They didn't believe. They saw the ten signs in the land of Egypt. They saw the parting of the Red Sea, the providing of water, the providing of manna, the providing of quail, the providing of water again. And then they say, no, we can't go in and conquer those people. Even though God has said it, we won't accept it. We can't go in and we can't conquer those people. We just don't believe that God is able to do that. And so they wander around the desert for 40 years while God kills them off one by one and the whole generation is gone. Then they enter into the land. Did the Jews learn their lesson? Elijah and Elisha and all the miracles that they wrought, did any of it turn the heart of the nation back to God? Did any of it convince the king to believe in God? All those miracles? None of them. Even Elijah himself, a man of like uh, passions as you and I are, after the magnificent sign on top of Mount Carmel and killing 450 prophets of Baal within hours, he's lying in a ditch begging for God to kill him because some woman named Jezebel wants his head on a platter. Did Elijah not get it? How could these people be so ignorant, so foolish, so sinful? Or are we just like them? We're just like them. Friends, the reality of it is, that you and I have a short memory for the works of God. And we can, within hours of seeing God work, begin to doubt Him and not embrace Him and not trust Him. Within hours of seeing provision, we can begin to say, wow, can God really provide for my next need? We're just like the children of Israel. We're just like the crowd in John 6. Apart from the grace of God, our heart would respond the exact same way that they did. Unbelieving in the face of magnificent light, magnificent evidence, It is not only only the grace of God that brings us to himself, that draws us to himself. It is only the grace of God that keeps us there and gives us the faith to see his hand. And left to ourselves, we have short memories for the works of God. Well, there's far more that could be said in this passage, even about the sign. We haven't got to verse 31. That, by the way, is what a preacher always says when he runs out of things to say. There's always so much more that could be said. But in this case, it is actually true that there is far much more that could be said even about that passage and seeking signs, and we will pick it up there next time. Let's pray together.
Our Father, we are grateful to you that you have demonstrated such magnificence of grace and kindness to us, your people. We thank you, O Father, for your provision, physical, financial, spiritual. You've given to us everything that pertains to life and godliness, everything that pertains to salvation. You've given it all to us. And yet in the light of such goodness and in the presence and the shadow of such magnificent works, where we see your hand at work in us and around us, we tend in our own strength to doubt you. We pray, O God, that we may learn this lesson not to do so, that you might by your grace, which has brought us to salvation, keep your people, strengthen us and secure us, we pray. We know that that is your will, for you will lose none of those whom you have have, uh, given to your Son, and you will lose none of those who come to your Son. So we thank you for your saving, securing, and sanctifying grace, which is in Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, Thank you for listening.